in some tourist area. We were dealing with tsetse flies and we had lions roaring outside our tent at night. As long as you kept those zippers done, at least I knew I wasn't going to wake up with a black mamba on my chest. <laughs> so many other kinds of poaching. There's honey poaching and bushmeat poaching. And it's all just as devastating because anything that destroys habitat is harmful for the wildlife. He had to sit and watch his brothers not just get killed, but actually eaten. It's so much different living with these animals in your backyard than it is here. She explained to me how hunting protects habitat in its natural form, where otherwise, if it's not a value, they're going to make it into crops and cattle. Hi, this is Sue Tidwell, and I'm author of Cries of the Savannah, and you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I would rest at peace for eternity if my legacy was that I made a positive influence on the non-hunting public about what hunters are and what hunting is. I finally got my buck on our last real day of hunting. So a pro-hunting organization is voting against hunting. And that says anti-hunting to me. There was a year straight where I was averaging up to 200 death threats a day. And I hugged it, like I just wanted to hug a bear. It's proven that the average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 hands and machines. And we're putting that into our body. Hey y'all, Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoors show here. This is Adam Weatherby. I'm Corey Jacobson with Elk 101. This is Christy Titus. Hey folks, this is John Bear. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Podcast Network. All right, y'all, super excited uh, for today's guest. I met Sue Tidwell at the Poma Conference recently and was turned on to her new book, Cries of the Savannah. She comes from a little bit of a different background, a little bit of a different history than, than many of my guests here on the podcast. So I'm really excited to speak with her today. Sue, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Sam, for having me. I look forward to chatting with you. So, you know, normally I start off asking people really how they got involved in the outdoors, but to some extent, that's that's kind of what this whole podcast is going to be about with you, with your book. It's a little bit of a, of a different setup because you, uh, I mean, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but you're not a, a hunter. No, I'm not a hunter, but I did grow up in a hunting family. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny though. I grew up at a time, I have four brothers, younger brothers and my dad, all four brothers hunted. And, um, but to be honest, I was just so thrilled when they went hunting 
that, you know, I wanted to do a little jig when they left the house. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, I, you know, we have a small house and, um, it was just nice to have that little bit of time to myself. So I never went hunting growing up with them. I mean, I ate the meat. I understood hunting. I supported it. It wasn't until I, you know, I ended up marrying a hunter. Um, I met him in Alaska and I started going on hunts with him. So I, I got exposed to hunting that way and saw it in a whole different way than I did as a kid. So yeah, I, I went on elk hunts with him. I was an elk decoy at one point. I mean, I have, yeah, I was on the sides of cliffs hanging on for dear life, you know, along with Rick. But <laughs> I feel like that's the the husband's, like every husband's dream is to find the wife that that wants to go hunting with him, but doesn't necessarily want to hunt herself. <laughs> so you absolutely <laughs> he gets me to help with everything but he doesn't have to dish out all the funds and all the stuff for the um <laughs> you know for the tags and everything and and i um but he's always he's so funny he he loves me to go so he buys me the best equipment and i mean i have every like heavy hot or like gear because i don't like to be cold so he just makes sure i'm comfortable that way that's awesome so what what took you out to Alaska? Cause that's a, uh, that's not like a necessarily a, a weekend trip for most people. There's a, uh, you know, and well, it sounds I like actually, you were out there for a while. Yeah. I actually, believe it or not, I worked in a steel mill in Pennsylvania for 10 years. I was a waitress in Myrtle beach for three years. I moved home to Pennsylvania. I worked in a steel mill, which is big, you know, main employer here in this area. I worked there 10 years and I went through a divorce and I, um, I was just really ready for a change. And my sister took a traveling uh, uh, respiratory therapist assignment in Alaska. And I went to visit her and I was just like, you know what? This is just an amazing place. And I ended up going home. I quit my job at the mill and I moved to Alaska. And my sister ended up staying too. She stayed for, we both stayed for like three years. And then I ended up meeting my husband up there. You know, it's funny. I, I think anybody that listen, has listened to the podcast knows that Montana is like my favorite place on earth. But they've also probably heard me say that if there's anywhere that could possibly maybe tempt me away from Montana, it would be Alaska. And suppose that all depends on, on what Bozeman and uh, Missoula end up doing to the rest of Montana. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really one of those kind of last frontier places. It's, it's like the last remaining kind of truly wild place. It really is. And it's just such a main, amazing. The people are, are, are wonderful. And it's always fun to hear their story, like how they got there. So I loved that. I loved meeting people and saying, now, how did you get here? Because inevitably, there's a great story behind it. But um, yeah, it's it's an amazing place to live for sure. But you know, it's harder to hunt than you think, though, because you have to, Rick went there too, thinking he was going to have so much hunting opportunities. But you really have to have the toys, you know, the the jet boats and the snow machines and the airplanes and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's, there's a a certain level of equipment and capability you have to have to really, I mean, yeah, if you're going to go live in the city that, you know, there are cities in Alaska, Mm -hmm. they're a little bit different, but if you're going to go live in the city, yeah. Okay. You can get away with a little bit more, but if you want to have really that Alaska experience, there's something, there's something required for that. I love I love what you said about like there's always a story about how somebody, you know, ended up in Alaska. And it's always I, it's almost always good. Like I have a buddy. I, I, he was one of uh, my very early podcast interviews and they live up there. And like he was from Southern California. And he's like, I just want to go up, trap animals and blacksmith and do all this stuff. And 
he now looks like a dude that you would expect to <laughs> you're like yeah oh no you totally live in alaska and, and like trap animals and blacksmith and all of this <laughs> yeah i met a woman i met a woman one time i can't remember her name but she went through a bad divorce and she said she got on the highway and drove as far north as she could go like clear up to that the long haul highway past Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. And then I think she ended up becoming a working on the railroad. But I mean, it was just a fascinating story. It's always fun. I think, you know, one of these days I feel like I'm just going to like, you know, I just need to hop in the car and go, you know, I need to, I need to get up there, but uh, I still, I've still never gotten a chance to visit. I've always been fascinated with Alaska, but so hopefully, hopefully sometime soon, but on your bucket list. Exactly. So you're you're in Alaska, you're married to a hunter, you're going on these on these hunts with him. That is, you know, a far cry from uh, from then uh, falling in love with Africa. So what what then kind of transpired in between in between these points? Well, you know, I understood deer and elk hunting, you know, but. All of a sudden, when my husband went to go hunt in Tanzania, it just was different. You know, we Americans tend to put um, African wildlife on like this pedestal and we kind of there are these beloved animals and we don't think anyone should hunt them. So and I was in that category, basically. But I'd always wanted to go to Africa. It had always been in my dream. But of course, I expected to be in the back of a, you know, a tourist vehicle going through Serengeti, seeing the lions tackle the zebras. You know, I just expected that whole thing with animals everywhere. But I didn't want to pass up. And my husband wanted to go as remote as possible. He wanted to be as as an old timey hunt as as he could, like the old days. So his plan was to go to remote Tanzania, out in the bush, sleep in a tent, scared me to death. But (laughs) I wanted to see Africa bad enough. And I, even though I wasn't thrilled about him hunting those animals, I, um, I trusted in my husband and I trusted in hunting in general. So I kind of stepped outside my comfort zone and I went along and ended up in remote Tanzania (laughs) and fell in love with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's one of those things. It's amazing what can change in your life. You know, and I, I know we all have like our hard lines, you know, moral stances and, and things we believe and we need that in life. You know, we need to decide where our hard lines are. But it's also amazing what happens where even if you have, you know, because I'd, I'd assume that was a pretty, to some extent, a hard line for you. You're like, no, these animals shouldn't be hunted. With certain animals more than others, you know, we pick and choose, you know, and like a zebra, for instance, you know, Rick's family has a, you know, we after after I met Rick in Alaska, we ended up moving to Idaho because he's from Idaho and they have a little little cattle horse ranch there. So there's, we had horses in our pasture. I mean, the idea of him wanting to kill zebra was just really hard for me. And he also, leopard was also on his list. So that was another really tough one. So I was okay with like a Cape Buffalo because I kind of equated it more to, you know, cattle and, and even the antelopes I equated to deer and elk. It was just certain animals that I had diff, more of a difficult time with. Yeah. It's a, what I always like to call out, you know, the hierarchy of, of dead animals on social media, like what's, <laughs> You know, what's, what's weird, okay what's allowed, what isn't. what's okay, you know, and, um, but you know, it's amazing. Like to, to, so to a certain extent though, it's like some of those animals, like, like those are no go, but when you're able to, I don't want to say open, have an open mind about it, but you're able to open yourself up to trying to understand what's going on from someone else's perspective or from 
something you've never experienced before, before you fully make that judgment about it. I mean, I think you would agree like that can be absolutely life changing. It's just, you know, and it was ease. I mean, I try to take people in the book. I try to people take people on the adventure with me. So they're experiencing it as I'm experiencing it. But when you're there living it, you, you all of a sudden hunting just makes common sense of why it helps wildlife. You know, like we were living, we weren't in some tourist area. We were dealing with tsetse flies and we had lions roaring outside our tent at night. And we were bumping around on hot roads every day long for 12 hours a day. And we had no pools, no air conditioning, no, you know, regular showers. I mean, it's just things that a lot of tourists wouldn't deal with any, and and then from being exposed to the staff and then our game scout, she taught me so much. So um, anyway, I just gradually just saw, came to feel it. I I didn't even need to, um, I didn't even need facts and statistics anymore. I could feel it in my bones and my, why it was so important, if if that makes any sense. (laughs) No, it absolutely does. I think, you know, I think that's where so often we as hunters across the board miss out is because. We're like, well, we have all the facts on our side. You know, we have the science and the facts and the the results on our side. And so those should just speak for themselves. And the problem is, you know, we as humans, that doesn't, you know, we have an emotional connection to this stuff. So we need to make an emotional argument. And to some extent, like it wasn't necessary, you know, it wasn't somebody convincing you. It was that experience, but you connected with it on an emotional level. And so it just made sense. You didn't need someone to cite like the, you know, elephant populations in Kenya versus Nambia and this or that, you know, whatever it happens to be Mm -hmm. to convince you, which, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a flaw that we as hunters so often have is we disregard or just don't know how to make that emotional connection for people because they already, that's what their arguments against. I agree. I think we have to fight emotion with emotion. I think we have to, I mean, statistics and facts are important. I don't want to negate that, but I, I think we need to tell the other side of the story. I mean, what the, what it's like for the people of Africa and, and you know, and just in general, I don't, even though the book's about Africa, it's kind of a, the message is kind of universal, but basically you want to connect it to the local people and how, how it protects animals and, and the emotional level. So, I mean, that's what I try to do with the book anyway, because yeah. that's how I connected to it. When I saw, when I became attached to the people of Masimba camp and saw how important well-managed hunting was to them and how much they love the animals and how it saved the habitat that most tourists would never want to go to, I started just gradually changing. I started getting it. I, I started feeling why it was so important. And and I could see their struggles, you know, and put it in that context. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. 
Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's so, uh, you know, we've been mentioning the book a bunch. I would love for you to kind of, I think if, you know, people can assume <laughs> from what we've been discussing a little bit so far, but I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about, about the book, what it encompasses, what inspired you to write it. Well, when we were over there, we had a um, female game scout, which was pretty, pretty amazing, really. There's not that many of that over there. And um, she was 23 years old, spoke really good English. Um, her main language was Swahili and then her, her um, native tongue. So they assign a game scout with every hunting party over there to make sure everything's legal and everything's done, documented. And you're together from like six in the morning till seven at night. So she just taught me so much. We just hit it off. And by the end of the trip, when I was, when I had had this whole transformation and instead of being skeptical of hunting, I was like passionate about how important it was. So by the end of the trip, I made a promise to Lillian that I would try to help the world understand because they could see the writing in the wall. They could see what was happening with anti-hunting movement and all this stuff. And, and they were, they're scared. They're worried what's going to happen to Africa and the wildlife. So I made her a promise. I would try to help people understand. And it kind of, I didn't know what, what I was really promising at the time, but I, um, this promise kind of evolved into a book. You know, I first tried to tell people, explain it to people in the beginning. It just wasn't going enough. So I started and I knew I had to back up what I learned in my heart or felt in my heart. I knew I had to back it up with facts. So I did a lot of research. And then, of course, the more research I did, the more passion I became. It was like a snowball effect, you know, <laughs> it just it just snowballed. So anyway, it evolved into this book, Cries of the Savannah. And basically, it's about it's a grand adventure. I mean, I don't want people to think it's all like this shoving conservation down your throat. It is a grand adventure. And then I kind of weave in the facts of conservation as I learned myself. So um, that's basically how I did it. And I tried to explain a little about hunting, how you feel and, and why trophies are important. I mean, I kind of weave all that into the whole book, um, but in fun stories. I kind of use fun stories throughout the book to tell the story, basically. That's fantastic. So really, you know, it's about... You know, it's what we were what we were talking about is tell the story with emotion, tell the story emotionally, but have those facts in there as well to back it up. And like I said, so often we do it just the opposite is we have the facts and we just tell those facts straight out. And then, you know, maybe a little bit of emotion afterwards. But I really think, you know, you go about it in such a fantastic way. You know, you connect with people, you show them your passion for it and those, those stories and all of that, but everything is built kind of on that foundation of facts as well. They're, they're there, or not even the foundation. It's like they have the, those supports of facts holding up all of that, all of that story you tell. It's very, it's perfect. And luckily most people seem to think it's a great mixture because they said they love the stories. And then, like I said, I, I kind of back it up with some facts, but not too many, just enough to kind of support what I learned. And then I go on to another story. So it's never too overwhelming at any point. So they tell me, so they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit more about your, 
your first time out there you know it's uh, uh like what are you thinking like when you first get uh, off the plane and, and get start getting out into the wild well the the funny thing is you know of course you you land in Arusha, which you've already been in the air, like, oh, I don't even know at this point, 23 hours or something like that. And then we stayed the night and then we got in a little bush plane. We had a two hour flight to get to where we landed on a little grass runs runway, you know, and of course you're all excited. You think we know we have 45 minute drive still back to the camp. And, um, we think we're going to see wildlife. Well, the wildlife we saw were tsetse flies. They just <laughs> bombarded us and we weren't prepared. We had all our tsetse fly gear there, but it was all packed away. So we just got like initiated first thing off of the plane, tsetse flies. But luckily we drove into Masimba camp and it was like this wonderful little oasis. There was no tsetse flies in camp. But camp was, we slept in a tent. Um, we could hear lions roaring outside at night. I mean, I love the, it, the nights were terrifying because you could hear the lions and the hyenas and you can hear elephants and hippos. But at the same time, they were just amazing. We, we couldn't wake up in the morning to talk about what we had heard in the night before. We called it the African Symphony because every night was a little different, <laughs> you know. But um, and another thing that was just really amazing that you kind of take for granted is the water. Like it was the end of the dry season. So all of our water came from a three foot hole in the ground. And um, they had to scoop it out with a can, dump it in a bigger bucket, carry it to a big oil drum, heat it over fire, dump it back in the bucket, crawl up a rickety ladder, dump it in a tank above our tent just so we could have a shower. So, you know what I mean? It's just amazing the, the work. Like we, when we first went there, there was 21 people to take care of four Americans. So we were like, oh, now this is overkill. I am not that pampered of a person. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought I was always pretty down to earth, but you get there and you're like, okay, so maybe I am high maintenance because, you know, you just don't realize involved in the simplest task. You know, all the all the meals were cooked over a fire outside. You know, they cooked bread in one of those with hot coals on the top and the bottom. I mean, it was, it was just an amazing experience. Like that alone, you know, I feel like it would almost be worth the trip out there. Uh, and it feels like you, you haven't even started the trip yet. At no, this point, you haven't even you know? started yet. <laughs> well, you know, the first day it was so funny because of course you're tired still, you're still in that jet lag, but, and then you were up, you know, the lions started roaring like at two in the morning and we were just like, Oh my gosh. And you know, Rick whispers to me, Sue, our first, that's, you know, that's our first line. I'm like, anyway, it was just, I jumped in bed with him. I got out of our little single bed and I jumped in bed with him. Like that little screen is going to save us, you know, but, um, Hey, we all watched ghost in the darkness here, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> maybe they get him first. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> he had a little bit more meat on his bones than I did. Maybe they take him first, but, um, but yeah, so exhausted, you know, and you take off that morning and you're so excited and we, um, we didn't even go very far. We went about, uh, we were probably about 45 minutes down the road, you know, dump, dumpity. When I say road, it's more like a dirt pathway, you know? Yeah. And um, we saw our first Cape Buffalo tracks. And it's those trackers are just amazing. I could watch them all day long. And anyway, Gogo saw the um, track and him and Rafael got out and looked at it and said, look like a big Daga boy. So next thing you know, we're following these tracks. And we're, you know, you're, you're being so quiet and you've heard all the stories of how dangerous Cape Buffalo are. And, you know, and I'm trying to be real quiet. I'm still really afraid of snakes at this point, point, you know, so I'm looking everywhere for snakes, but like you're in this line. So it's always like a PH, then Rick, then Gogo, then me, then the second assistant and then Lillian. So you're like in this line, I called it like, um, 
a slow version of follow the leader kind of. <laughs> but um, anyway, we follow this Stagger Boy tracks for like an hour. We're all hunched over. We're all so, quiet. So I got to I got to get you to uh, explain Dagaboy. Oh, 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 sorry. Dagaboy <laughs> is a Cape Buffalo and it's an old male that's been kicked from the herd. So they live on their own. Usually sometimes they, they you know, pair up with another Dagaboy or two, but they're called Daga because Daga um, in Swahili means mud. And they love to like lay around in the mud. So that's where Dagaboy comes from. So, yeah. So we were after this Dagaboy and. And we got to the sandy area and all of a sudden Raphael go, go, stood up and the hunt was over. And we're, Rick and I are looking at each other like, what just happened? But it had crossed into the national park. So uh, our hunt was just over. But that's why you have a professional hunter. You know what I mean? They know all this stuff. We, we were so intent on where we were stepping that we didn't even know we had entered the riverbed. So because the riverbed was the, the mm -hmm, line. The border. But, yeah. And then later that day, we went after a zebra like four or five times. I thought a zebra was going to be just a, like a shooting gallery type situation. It was not. They are, they are just so hard to hunt and so alert. And they always hang out with heart of beasts. So they kind of warn each other. And then the guinea fowl, if they see it coming, they are the little squawkers. <laughs> they, um, they tell on you. And those so, things are nightmares. I, uh, uh I was actually looking at getting some. I just bought chickens for my coop here on the property. And my folks had had uh, guinea hens. And for that purpose, they are amazing alarm animals. Because, I mean, you get like a teeny fox or teeny like little predator animal 100 yards away. And those things are like are, are waking you up in the house, you know, all the way from the barn. Those things are nasty and loud. So I can only imagine the wild ones out there that are on high alert. Oh, they are. And they like to hang out with those animals because, of course, they eat the bugs and stuff off the manure. So um, it's just kind of crazy. But, yeah, it's hard to get close to a zebra. Then you finally do and you find out there's no mature male there, you know, so you have to because um, it's kind of they have to make sure you get one that's towards the end of its life and not a, mm -hmm. you know, a harem uh, male anymore. So. So, I mean, with zebras, are there is there like specific I mean, are you just hoping you got good binoculars and you can kind of get a look up underneath them or how do you really, how do they tell? Well, I, that too. I mean, Raphael and Rick of course had his binoculars, but Raphael, you really depend on your professional hunt, hunter and the tracker because he can read things the way like Rick be, grew, being that Rick grew up on a horse ranch, he could kind mm -hmm. of tell by the big jowls and stuff, which one were the males. But I think you also look for, for um, the ones that have been kicked out of herd, like scratches and wounds and things like that. And Interesting. Just, you don't want them to be with the females because then they're still in a harem. So um, yeah, there's all these things they have to look for. So um, yeah, it's just not like, it's not the shooting gallery I thought it was going to be. And um, we went, I think after them four or five times a day and then, and several other animals actually. And by the end of the day from that jet lag, I was so tired that I was literally like sleeping in as we bounced around the back of the vehicle and I would, my, my shoulder would go onto Rick's shoulder for a while. And then another bump would throw me onto Raphael's and like, and it was just so funny. I'm like, wow, you get to know somebody really quick in that kind of environment. But the next day was really exciting because the next morning is when Rick actually got Cape Buffalo. So that was. That's, that's one of those animals that's just, you know, <sighs> I've, I, the more I talk with people, the more excited I get about uh, taking a trip out to Africa. And it's, you know, North American wild game. That's always been my passion. That's what I've fallen in love with. And that's, you know, what I want my focus to be. But I do 
want to take, like, I'm not going to be the guy that goes every year, takes my trip to Africa and goes and hunts. Like I'll, I'll maybe do it once, get the experience and then kind of come back to what I know and love. But the Cape Buffalo, that's one, that's one animal. And I mean, there is only so much you can say, like only so many people can save you. Like I've, killed the most dangerous animal on the planet like that's wild to me it's it's wild you know and it's what and the way it happened that morning it was so crazy because we had taken off and we really won't we weren't even 30 minutes from camp i don't think and next thing i know i didn't see anything i'm not a morning person so like in the mornings i was kind of sluggish Next thing I know, we're all jumping out of the vehicle and we're running. The day before had been slow, meticulous. Everything had been slow, meticulous tracking and stalking. Then all of a sudden this morning, we're just like running. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what about the snakes? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm running. <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with everybody, but I'm also worried about snakes. And then I, I don't even know what we're chasing at that point. And all of a sudden I get there. I don't know how I didn't hear them. I look up, you know, because the, the guys stopped behind a tree. I look up and there's like a whole herd of Cape Buffalo running across the Savannah. Oh man. And I just, you could hear them and see them. And, and then, you know, then we snuck a little closer and then we had Rick and I had trained for him to rest his elbow on my shoulder um, to, for more stability. Um, he learned that from Shockey or, <laughs> and our, I don't know who else, but you know, he watches all those shows, you know? So he had his, his elbow on my shoulder and my, I had my ears plugged and we're watching them all go by. And I'm thinking, you know, we had saved and saved for this trip and we had sold our camper, sold a mule. We had sold all this stuff to make sure we could go. And um, I'm watching all these Cape Buffalo go by and they all look the same to me. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's wrong with that one? What's wrong with that one? What's wrong with that one? I'm thinking that in my head. And then finally, the like it was the last one trailing behind. And um, Raphael said, shoot. Well, then I was afraid that I was afraid I was going to mess up Rick's shot if I flinched. Mm. So I shut my eyes like an idiot. And then I heard Raphael say, shoot. And Rick shot apparently. And apparently the Buffalo was charging us. It was coming towards, but I didn't know because I had my eyes shut. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, blissfully luckily, unaware. <laughs> yep. I was like blissfully, which is pretty good because I might've flinched and messed up a shot. And that's one that you do not want to do on a Cape Buffalo. You do not want to, you do yeah. not want to injure one. But anyway, it ran. Next thing you know, we were all just running after it took off running and we were all just running after it. And we, I think 60 yards, it, it was over and dead. And, you know, we took that insurance shot, as they call it. And yeah. uh, he got his first Cape Buffalo. So it was amazing. It was really amazing. That is, uh, gosh, that's the, that's the story right there. Like that's, <laughs> that's just perfect. Um, now I can't afford a trip to Africa right now. That's I, <laughs> <laughs> you can do it if you just start saving. It's not as expensive as some people think, you know. Yeah, depends what you're going after. Well, and, and that's the thing. I think it, yeah, you know, there's plane tickets and there's there's costs involved and the outfitters. I think really the 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 price comes in when you are deciding what animals you want to take while you're out there. Like yeah. you know, you're not. It's going to be one thing. You know, you want to go for a warthog and a, you know, like a, a water buffalo or something. And, a, a few, you know, just a few uh, and an antelope, something like that. You're going to be a lot more cost effective than if you're like, I want to take a, a zebra, a giraffe and a Cape Buffalo. Then you're probably going to, you're probably going to be spending a little bit more money. <laughs> yeah. You still, you still have to start adding up. But the problem is once you get there, like we went over our budget because once you're there, you're kind of like, okay, this is my only time, you know, yeah. like for instance, Cape Buffalo, we're only, 
I don't want to say only, but they were only $3,000 trophy fee in Tanzania when we were there hmm. because Rick's main hunt was the leopard hunt. So the Cape Buffalo was just separate. So after he got that first one, there was actually three Cape Buffalo on his quota. So we had the discussion. Oh, Rick's telling me how cheap it is compared to everywhere else. And, you know, <laughs> we'd, we'd be like, losing money if I didn't shoot we'd this be losing buffalo. money. <laughs> and so anyway, we agreed if another opportunity came up, he, you know, he could try for another one. But, um, but yeah, it was so funny after we had, you know, processed the animal, said our thanks and, and did all that. Um, we were talking about it. And I told him my eyes were shut and Raphael, the PH, he's, he's just so kind, so serious, but he's, he's very humble, very serious type of a person. And he was just amazing. But anyway, he said, Sue, please don't shut your eyes the next time. And, uh, but he did tell me why we waited for the last Buffalo, but cause the old Buffaloes are kicked to the back of the herd. Mm-hmm. Buffaloes like that are in head charge. They want the front and center get the best grazing and it's the safest spot. So anyway, so that's why we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Which that makes sense. You know, though, he's kind of kicked out of the herd. He's probably a little bit older, a little bit slower. You know, he's kind of getting dragging behind a little bit. So that's a, you know, good way to guarantee you're getting that, that old Dagaboy you're, you're looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. So what was the experience like, you know, you talked a little bit about it, but, um, you tell tell me a little bit more just about your experience with the the PHs and how that relationship develops and because I think that's one of the coolest <sighs> parts about it is how close you get to those men that are working with you, men and women. It's so it's just it's hard to put in words. I feel so blessed that we with a group we were at, because you you know, we were with this people, 21 people, and there's no villages nearby in Tanzania. Um hunting concessions don't have villages. So the nearest village was four hours away. So that was all we saw. And um, they just, and I, I tried learning, like I learned Swahili when I was there. <laughs> I um, I just wanted to learn how to say thank you in Swahili and good night and all those things. So I think they really respected that and loved that. So it got to be, everyone was teaching me. Like once they learned, found out I was learning, they were all teaching me. And we just, they were just, even the ones that couldn't speak English were just so giving. So you just became so attached to them. Even our tracker who couldn't speak English, our head tracker, he would bring me porcupine quills and he would bring me tufts of lion hair. And he would just little gifts like that. It just so considerate. And um, I I just love them. I just came so close to um, the people. And I have to tell you about the secret sauce of Masimba camp. Oh, okay. Jewel, it was kind of like the, I called him the secret sauce of, of, of Smith Camp. He was, I guess you would call him the camp host. He was always at the dining hut when we were there. He was just amazing storyteller. You would love him. And, <laughs> um, but I was scared to death of black mambas when I was there. And so I was always asking everybody in the beginning, do you know anybody that died of a black mama? Do you know anybody that died of a black mama? <laughs> and I had gotten like four no's. So I was starting to kind of go, okay, you know, maybe this is something I don't need to worry about. But I'm going to find one person that says yes, so I can feel uncomfortable about this. Well, yeah, well, I was starting (laughs) to feel good. And then I had the mistake of asking Joel. And Joel said, oh, my brother died of a black mamba bite when he was 10 years old. Now I'm the oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. And so in one statement, I heard that his brother died of a black mamba. And I heard that he was the oldest of 35 siblings. And then he hits us with the 
fact that six years earlier, he had gotten spit in the face by a spitting cobra. He lost his sight. And he said, oh, it hurt bad. It hurt really bad, really bad. Because he'd repeat, you know, anyway, the way he talked was just so funny. But yeah, he was gathering wood and there's a spitting cobra coiled up there and it got him right in the face. Luckily, the camp they were at was only like two hours from the hospital. They got him to a hospital and, you know, and he said he, oh, I saw green, I saw yellow, I saw blue. And then finally his sight came back after about five days, I think. That's... um, (laughs) <laughs> oh, I so I you know and anybody that listens knows I don't do well with snakes like venomous snakes. I can handle like the non. I can I can be around them. I still get a little uh, cringy, but I just had a I just had a rattlesnake pop up next to my grill last night, and I I he became an appetizer. We'll talk. You know that's a different story, but <laughs> that's the one thing I, I will say. Ha oh, snakes! I mm, <laughs> spitting well, snakes that spit. Bit? snakes that oh. just like black mambas and spitting cobras go oh, dear lord help me no well you know and like an idiot i read death in the long grass have you read that book i've heard the, i've heard of the book oh my gosh I'm, you need uh, to read was, that it's book. been referenced in some other books i've read yes. it's on my list to so pick up. it is terrifying but it's not a good book to read right before you go to africa <laughs> so i have snakes on my brain along with all these other horrible stories so i'm picturing a elk tent you know like when you go to elk camp you know you have a nice wall tent and you have a floor but critters can get underneath you know mice and snakes things like that and we've had both in our tents well when i got there i'm picturing you know those stories i've heard from death in the long grass and we've got in our tent and i saw that the walls were zippered to the floor i literally almost got on my knees and kissed the ground i was so (laughs) excited to see that snakes and creepy crawlies could not get in the tent. I mean, I had, you know, we had to unzipper and zipper to go to that little bathroom and to go out. But as long as you kept those zippers done, at least I knew I wasn't going to wake up with a black mamba on my chest, you know? So (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, that's great. They kept insisting though. Don't worry. They hear you coming. They're going to be gone. You know, that's what the Africans tell you. But I, I I don't, I, that's a, that's, I don't care how much evidence they have that's a bold-faced lie snakes are not <laughs> snakes are not more concerned about me than i am about them <laughs> oh, i'm okay <laughs> fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish it's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home it's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So, I mean, uh, I kind of want to say, you know, like you're, ta- you're talking about Jewel and he just sounds like that perfect storyteller, kind of like the just the right amount of embellishment, maybe a little exaggeration. The story's true, but it's just the perfect storyteller. He was... Oh my gosh, he was just so fun. But yeah, his his brother died when he was herding goats when he was 10 years old. Joel didn't really remember him much because he was a sec- he was just young at the time. But his dad had five wives and you know, they have he had 35 siblings and he would just tell stories about his family and his dad was starting to lose his 
memory a little bit and he couldn't remember what wife was what and he would take Joel with him and then Joel had to say and then he then after out of the blue he'd look at Joel and say who are you I mean it was just listen to we could I could have sat and listened to Joel talk all day long so he was just amazing oh my gosh that sounds absolutely like I'm I'm grinning from year to year right now because <laughs> um man five five what you 35 siblings but five wives that's still a lot like that's still yeah, that's a lot <laughs> that's a lot of Jewel, kids per wife <laughs> well Jewel, well you know that's the culture there they judge um a, it's a cattle culture so they judge mm-hmm. their social standing and their financial standing basically on how many wives they can support so you know the richer you are the more wives you have and the more cattle you have yeah. now Joel, on the other hand he said i educated i only have one wife so he, you know, the more it seems like the more educated, the less prevalent mm-hmm. that is. Well, it's probably a little bit of kind of Western influence to, uh, you know, the education imparts a little bit more of the Western culture as part of that and, and different value systems and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's wild. And I completely just my brain just shut down and I forgot what question I was about to ask you, but. Well, I'll tell you a little bit while you're thinking of it. I'll tell you a little about Raphael. Raphael was our professional hunter and he had been with Hillary. We were kind of unique because even the the owner was black Tanzanian. Everyone was, um, you know, native Tanzanian. So um, he had been, um, RPH has started out as a tent boy. He worked himself up to be a tracker and then he went to professional hunter school. And so he really worked his way up. He had been with Hillary for, I think, 18 years or something at that point. So, and he was just, I, I don't know, I can't say enough good things about him. He was so skilled and so generous without being like, he wasn't braggy or or anything. Do you know what I mean? He was just, he was just, and we would be going along, like Rick and I would be whispering, like we always were going by those termite mounds that are like, you know, 15, mm-hmm. 20 foot high. And I once whispered to Rick, you know, why do we never see any termites? And, you know, then nothing happened for 15, 20 minutes. We went on to something else. And then 15 minutes later, Raphael went into this long explanation of termites. So it was so funny. I don't know if we, where we were at at that exact time. It was, he was too focused on looking for wildlife or what made him wait the 15 minutes, but he would just educate us as best he could on stuff. So, and Lillian was the same way. Lillian, our game scout, I had learned so much from her. She, um, like I said, was 23 years old and she is not affiliated with a hunting party at all. So she is there to oversee everything. So she has just meeting all those people at the same time we were. Okay. But anyway, we were just for instance, um, like she would find a fruit and she'd pick it up and she'd cut it up and let Rick and I try it. And she would teach us about trees or animals or, or like we came across elephant bones, for instance. And that's where I learned a lot about poaching because that opened up a story, you know, a learning opportunity, basically, because, you know, we tend to think of just rhino and elephant poaching, but there's there's so many other kinds of poaching. There's honey poaching and bushmeat poaching and timber poaching. And um, it's all just as devastating because anything that destroys habitat is harmful for the wildlife. And, and then she explained to me too, because, you know, I, like I told you, I was really concerned about Rick hunting a leopard. 
But she explained to me how important it was to place a value on those animals, even those animals, because um, the people didn't really want to live with those animals. They're, they're dangerous. They're destructive. They kill wildlife. They kill people. So a lot of times they resort to poisoning. So, mm-hmm. and when they poison, you're poisoning everything. You're poisoned young, old, male, female, every animal that feeds off of it. It's real indiscriminate. So by offering a value, it gives them a reason to find ways to live with those animals, basically. It provides, uh, basically, it provides more value to those local communities than than it would otherwise if they were using it for bushmeat or poisoning them to keep them from disturbing, you know, disturbing their their community or whatever that happens to be. It adds that extra value. But I imagine a lot of it was just across the entire time you were out there and the entire trip and it all kind of had this effect on you. But was there similar to that? Was was there a moment, you know, you had these kind of hardline animals that you're like, nope, nope, you shouldn't be hunting those. Was there really a moment that kind of changed your mind where you kind of realized like, oh, I get it now. Was there kind of that that light bulb moment at all? I don't. I had several, I guess you could say light bulb moments, but I think more in all, it was, it was accumulation of everything I learned, you know, um, but that was one of my light bulb moments when Lily and I had that discussion about carnivores learning how, how it's much more likely that they're going to get poisoned and die that way. And, and how she explained to me how hunting protects habitat and its natural form, where otherwise, if it's not a value, they're going to make it into crops and cattle, you know, pastures or, or human um, settlement. So I, I started learning. And then from experiencing that remoteness, I realized that most photo tourists don't want to go where we were at. I mean, yeah. but hunting makes that land valuable. So another aha moment we were having our camp, we were, Joel was given our um, kind of a tour of camp. And, and by this time, I was already like, as you can see, I'm a kind of an emotional person who gets passionate about things. <laughs> and I was passionate about my Simba camp. I, that was my little Shangri-La kind of thing. And after with this little camp tour, he told me they were going to be tearing it all down. We were the last hunters of the season. He said, oh, oh this wow. will all be torn down. And I was just devastated. I'm like, you're tearing down our camp. And he said, yes, we have to, because on the off season, we don't want poachers to move in. Mm. And then they explained how. Um, you know, we were, our camp was right on the border of the Ruaha National Reserve. So um, national park. So hunting acts as a buffer zone, which I had never thought of. You know, they place hunting concessions around those national parks to act as a one more layer against poaching. So um, it was that camp tour and no, and then he said, and then when I was all sad, he says, Sue, don't worry. Now this gives us all these jobs in the spring because we have to rebuild camp. We have to hire all these villagers and it takes them a month and we have to cut roads again and we have to rebuild everything that we just tore down. So, and then he started explaining to me the trickle down effect of the money that hunting brings in, you know? So I think that was another aha moment, I think. So, you know, you're talking about hunting camp and I think with, you know, a lot of, a lot of people here in North America, you know, we sit and we think a hunting camp, like, you know, okay. If you've got, you know, a really big hunting camp, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's like a wall tent and then like a little small, you know, covered area for a, a, a kitchen area or something like that. And even that, you know, is, is pretty elaborate for a hunting camp in North America. You know, that's like an, yeah. some an outfitter would do. What was the hunting camp like out there? Cause you know, you talking about, they have to hire villagers to construct this thing. It's a, it's a pretty big ordeal. 
Yeah, it really is. They have, well, for clients like us, we had a little tent, uh, like a 12 by 12 tent. And then they built a little bathroom to the back of the tent made out of um, grasses and uh, logs, basically. And that was so, so that like we didn't thatch, have to go. Like a thatch. Yeah, a thatch. Okay. And it was attached to the back of the tent so that, because we were told never to leave the tent at night. That's when, I mean, people get killed that way because, but for some reason, most animals, at least this is what we were told, <laughs> most animals don't look at the tent as penetratable. They, they look at it, they don't realize they can penetrate it. So if you stay in your tent, most of the time you're safe. So they built this little thatch hut behind us and we had a little bathroom back there, a little sink and a little sh- makeshift shower. And um, so each of the clients, we had that. And then there was a dining hut where, you know, we hung out at and we ate our meals. And and right below the dining hut was a little, um, a puddle left over from the dried up riverbed. And so all the animals came in there to drink. Um, but see, that's part of the park. So any, it was kind of an unspoken word, but Masimba camp was off limits for hunting. I mean, mm-hmm. It was just, it was, yeah, it was just, they were so protective of the animals. It was just amazing. Um, we had a bat living above the dining hut for a while. That was very stressful to me, <laughs> but they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even move it, which I really respected that. You know, they finally, after the third or fourth day, they strung something up to try to get redirected sleeping habits. But, um, <laughs> but it was just, uh, I, I respected that so much, but anyway, so there's the dining hut and you had the cooking area, which said several like fires going there. And then you had the, the, um, skinning shed, which is where they boil the bones and they had scaffolding to put the bones and stuff up on so that the predators couldn't get it at night. And they had a little enclosed skinning shed area where they put, you know, the skins that are in the salt and stuff. Then they had like a, like a little area where the extra people slept. Like that's where Lillian and the other game scout pitched a tent. But like Rick and I are so naive in the beginning. We think, oh, okay, everybody has this beautiful little tent like we have and they have these showers and they have all this and then you find out like they're just sleeping by the cook slept in the cooking area to keep animals from in joel slept behind the dining hut in a little bunk um lillian slept in that tent and they didn't have the stuff we had you know they weren't Mm -hmm. being pampered like we were so it's you know it's funny you're like oh man i'm it's almost you're like in this mindset like oh i'm 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 really roughing it. You know, I'm, I'm it's kind of like, you're like, I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of a badass, you know, <laughs> I'm really roughing it here. And then you're like, homie is sleeping in the kitchen. So animals don't get into the kitchen. Like he, he is the wall between the animals. <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. And you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. That tent, that camp was like a compared to elk camp. I mean, Rick, puts up a nice elk camp so that mm-hmm. I'm comfortable because he knows I need to be warm. He gives me a little yeah. wooden stove and everything, but still, I'm still doing the PTA things. You know, I don't, you know what that is. And that's pits tits. And anyway, <laughs> I, get ass, that's what I, we, yeah, okay. I have never heard that before. <laughs> Del camp, you know, we heat a little thing of water over the cook stove and that's my shower. So I was like thinking I was on seventh heaven in the Simba camp. That's wild. I've I've never heard that before, and I'm going to use that so often now. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> oh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna have to to change that, I guess, for guys. But that is I I'm literally writing it down because I find find that so funny. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that before, but uh, so really, if if you could kind of. If you had to summarize the message you're trying to get across, 
with sharing your experiences in the book. How would, how would you summarize that? Well, I want people to fall in love with Africa like I did. That's number one. So I want them to go on this grand adventure experience, even if they've been to Africa before, I want them to see it again through the eyes of someone experiencing it for the first time, because I've had hardcore safari hunters who just, they just say they love it because they feel like they're, they're there again. But anyway, I want people to go on this grand adventure. I want them to fall in love with Africa and ultimately to care about Africa. So if they care about Africa, they'll fight against the antis that are trying to do the import bans. And I mean, I don't mean they have fight, but they at least won't get on the bandwagon. Or maybe if they hear somebody talking bad about African hunting, maybe they'll say, well, listen, there's more to the story than that. You know, I, I just want them to be educated and help people understand how important hunting is to the people and ultimately the wildlife of Africa. Because I'm telling you, the more I learn and the more I read, it is just scary to um, think about what is going to happen if they succeed in banning even trophy imports, um, that will really devastate Africa and a reason to keep animals alive, basically. I mean, last October, three children in Tanzania, not far from where we were at, were killed and eaten by lions. Um, Jeez. It's just things we can't even, you know, I mean, there was four little boys, four brothers, and the one brother escaped to a tree. Beat. He had to sit and watch his brothers not just get killed, but actually eaten. So um, I just want people to know that it's so much different living with these animals in your backyard than it is here. It's not like, like an elephant. You know, a deer might come and destroy some corn in your garden, but th that's not going to affect your livelihood. That's You're still going to be able to eat. Um an elephant can wipe out a whole villager's crops in a night. And, yeah. and then they're out there trying to defend their crops and then they end up getting killed. I mean, it's just, it's just people need to recognize there's got to be a reason for them to live with these animals. If not, they just don't want them there, quite honestly. Their lives would be easier without them. Well, it's like the, the most outspoken, you know, anti-African hunting advocates tend to be a lot of people with that kind of the, the white savior complex where it's like, I'm a, I'm a white person. I know better than these, these, uh, you know, African savages is effectively what they're saying. Cause if you talk to anyone that actually lives out there that has experienced it, they will, that's the story they'll tell you. That was, you know, what I've heard from, from you, what I've heard from everyone that's been out there is it's the same story. And they have a right to make their own rules. I mean, they're doing well with them. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't problems in Africa. I'm not saying yeah. hunting is all to be all thing. Everything can, can be improved upon, but they should have a right to make their own rules and what works for them. We have no right to dictate. Um, it's like somebody, it's like them coming there and telling us how to run whitetail deer hunting in Pennsylvania. I yeah. mean, what do they know about whitetail deer hunting in Pennsylvania? So um, it's just, it's just, it, it's colonialism kind of backwards or what I mean, you know, it's, it's just, Oh, it's crazy. It's so frustrating. But um, anyway, so I'm just helping. And, you know, here's another thing I want to mention a lot of, a lot of hunters even don't understand the whole thing about meat. They're a lot of hunters are just substance hunters, but no way, no meat goes to waste in Africa. You may not be bringing it home to feed your own family, but let me tell you, you are feeding people who need it way more than your own family. And I can't tell you what a rewarding experience that is to 
to be feeding people who are protein deficient, um, it affects you in a way that it's hard to really put in words. But, you know, like in, in, Miss, in Miss Simba camp, for instance, the villages weren't close enough. So we had all the extra meat was dried and hung on clotheslines. It looked like socks on a clothesline. I mean, then it was taken to villages at a later time. But even though Tanzania was supposed to be our one and only trip, and I am going to warn you this, once you go to Africa, you'll always want to go back. But mm -hmm. we have been back since there. And so I've got to experience giving the meat to the people. And it's just an amazing experience. I mean, I, we, we take it for granted here. You know, I mean, half, half of North America doesn't even understand that, that meat comes from animals. It comes from the magic grocery store fairy that, you know, and it's sitting on its nice little diaper to remove all the blood or any sign that it was ever actually a living creature. And, you know, we take the, that for granted because we have the Walmart fairy that provides our meat that it's a common thing. We have that ability to, like you said, to get that protein in our diet on a regular basis. It's, it's a foregone conclusion it, over there. You know, it's, it's a pretty rare thing. Like it really, it's, it's not a common it really thing is. to have meat every day. Yeah. Sometimes I go months without meat, you know, without real protein. So it's, it's definitely a different situation over there that, you know, it's that you, you, it's good to experience. It's good to see that other side. I think, you know, I, I, I get that not everyone's going to have that opportunity. It's just not, not realistic, you know, mm -hmm. for, for everybody to go over there. And most of these people that go over and visit are going to end up on a game preserve. Good chance. It's probably going to be some, some white guy that's, uh, you know, over there for the season, you know, doing a part-time job leading this. They're not going to, they're not going to have that, that real experience like you did. And, and so I get that not everyone's going to understand that, but it's, uh, it's important. And that, that's definitely part of the problem. Cause even me, you know, like this originally was never my dream to go to Africa like this. I would have been one of those people on those vehicles to go into the park where there's umpteen animals just sitting there. They're not afraid of you. You go and you rest in a pool, at, you know, in the afternoon. I mean, that was my original dream. But when I look back at it, I think, God, I would have missed on. So, I mean, I'm not saying don't do it. I want people to go to Africa no matter what way they do it. But if they go that way, just realize that there's another aspect of Africa as well that, um, because I just want people to go to Africa in general. But I'm just glad that we got to spend so much time with people where you actually connected with them instead of like you're with this guy for a day and then you're with this guy a day and then you're with, you know what I mean? It just yeah. built such a deeper connection. I definitely think it must give you just insight that so many people are missing out on. That's amazing. So if folks wanted to find the book, follow along, uh, follow along with what you're doing, where can they... Uh, where can they find you online? Um, I am, the book is on Amazon. So under Sue Tidwell, Cries of the Savannah. And I'm on Instagram, suetidwell.writer. Um, I'm on Facebook as Sue Tidwell. And I also do want to say one other thing. The book, although I really want non-hunters to read it, and even anti-hunters, if we can get them to, um, I need help in that department. <laughs> because <laughs> what I have learned is that it's hard to get non-hunters to pick up the book on their own. They, they mm -hmm. see that it's about hunting. It's just not something that grabs their interest. But I get great feedback from those same people if 
like from book clubs, like it, the book was chosen in their book club or their husband recommended it or their friend recommended it. I'm getting great feedback from those people and it totally changes their perception on hunting, not just in Africa, but even here. Like I had a group of Seattle realtors who now they look at mounts on a wall with respect and as a memory instead of turning up their nose in disgust. So, but I want, I guess I want hunters to read it and enjoy it for the adventure and then pass it on to those who could benefit from it. You know, people in their family or friends. So I just could appreciate, because as you can see, I'm passionate about getting this message out. So I just want to get it into as many hands as possible. And I so appreciate you having me on here to talk about it. No, absolutely. It was my pleasure. This is, I will, uh, and believe me when I say, I don't say this often, but this is to date, one of my favorite podcasts I've recorded. I've loved sitting down with you. Um, Thank you. I, I will encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy of the book, pick up two copies, share one with a friend that doesn't hunt. Uh, somebody, you know, be like, hey, read this book. Let's talk through it. Let's have a discussion about it. I encourage everyone to pick up an extra copy. I will make sure to link to that on the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Sue, thank you so much for joining. I'm so glad we were able to sync up. And uh, oh, me too, Sam. Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk with you again. And I appreciate you having me on here. My pleasure. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Y'all, make sure you head over to Amazon. Uh, there's a link here on the show notes page. Make sure you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Sue's book. It is absolutely fantastic. It will probably spark something in you that you didn't know was there. And I'm serious, you know, y'all go pick up an extra copy. Find someone, you know, whether they're in the hunting community and opposed to African hunting or they're just uh, a non-hunter, pick up a second copy of the book or, or loan them your copy and open up that opportunity to have a discussion with them. I think it's, it's so important. And Sue's book does such a great job of connecting with, with this topic on an emotional, fun, enjoyable level with these stories and uh, as well as the facts woven in through that narrative. But y'all, uh, again, check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Also y'all head on over to iTunes and Stitcher. Please take a moment just to leave a quick rating and review. It really helps get the word out about the podcast, uh, helps us in the rankings and uh, it would mean a ton to me. I love getting to see those reviews. So, all right, y'all that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to the wild initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to the wild to get show notes. Check out the blog gear discounts, other podcasts from the wild initiative family and more. 